Please join me in the prayer of elimination. Risen the Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection as we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came into the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the lemon wrappings lying there in the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the lemon wrappings, but rolled up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. So um, forgive me for a brief moment for a Greek lesson. Now, the Gospel of John is wonderfully full it does great things, right? John gives you more narration than you really want, right? You know, you have Jesus at the Last Supper saying, I say this, not because I need to know it, but because they need to hear it, and my Father knows it in heaven, right? There's all these little parenthetical moments in the Greek, in the Gospel of John, where, God, uh, where Jesus is explaining everything that's going on. It's uh, almost like a tour guide in the moment, right? Now, um, this morning at the sunrise, we read uh, the Mark passage, and in between these two passages is a fascinating piece. In the Mark passage, most scholars would say that it ends at verse 8. In fact, the whole gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. And so what that means is you end up with uh, the women who had gone to the tomb, who had been uh, greeted by the angel, who were told to go and tell the disciples that Peter uh, tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. Uh, there you will see him, as he told you. 
The last verse, or the last sentence, okay, the last incomplete sentence is, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay, that's curious. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. If they said nothing to anyone, how'd you and I get here? What do you do with the strange ending of Mark? In fact, the English, they clean it up and make it look nice, right? It's almost like the early church fathers and mothers needed uh, it to pass the grammar check or spell check of their word processor, and so they rearranged it. But really in the Greek, if you like diagramming sentences, I didn't think so, um, if you like diagramming sentences, it ends without the last clause. It's almost like they ran, they were terrified, they told no one for. I think this is interesting, that the most monumental story, the most powerful moment in the disciples' lives, the moment in which their teacher has been arrested, has been uh, crucified like a common criminal, buried in a borrowed tomb, they go to do their last respects, and the stone has been rolled away, and like as empty as a bubble, the tomb is empty of Jesus. But Mark, the Gospel of Mark, doesn't even finish the sentence. It's, it's like something happened, and they had to run. It was like something happened, and they decided it wasn't worth telling. It was like something happened that changed their lives. Now, the Gospel of John does a great job. There's lots of interaction. It's, it's a beautiful story, and it gets to the same place where Mark does. It says, go and find him. He's gone ahead and is waiting for you. Now, my New, New Testament professor in seminary said, um, the, the question here is when is an ending not an ending? Well, an ending is not an ending when a man who's supposed to be dead lives again. When, it, when is an ending not an ending? I want you to wonder and think with me about the terror that comes realizing for the disciples that Jesus is alive. Think for a moment about the three years that they have spent with him. Think about all the wonderful memories and the special loving and caring that Jesus gave to the disciples. It all floods back to them. Think of the times that he made uh, room on his lap uh, for a child who was not considered important by anyone. Uh, or, or the times in which um, he paid attention to those who were not ever paid attention to. The beggars, the women, the children, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers the slaves, all of these he called his own and treated as if they were royalty. I mean, this was a man who did not deserve to die. Think about the last moments of the disciples. Peter, my sake, right? Says, oh no, Lord, I will never forsake you. And by the third snooze of the alarm clock, he denied him three times. Think about uh, the psalmist says, I will strike the shepherd and the flock will scatter. The disciples scattered for sure. They had all gone, uh, disappeared. They either disappeared, denied, or disguised themselves in the middle of the moment of the three days that Jesus is dead. And they only come out of hiding at the light of day. And what do they find? Jesus is not dead. 
he's alive. Oh, sure, there's great joy in that Jesus is alive. But, but let's be honest here. If you had denied him three times, it's almost like it'd be easier if he was dead in the grave and you could, you could mourn and you could be done and you could work through the stages of grief and then get on with your life. But here he is alive. And you got to look into those eyes and say, I'm sorry. You got to say, you know, for one disciple who pulls out the sword, having heard all about the peaceable kingdom in the middle of the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, in the middle of the night when the soldiers come to arrest him, the disciple cuts off his ear. I say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. We know how Judas dealt with the grief and difficulty of having to face Jesus again. But how do you handle the terror of grace? How do you handle the terror of forgiveness? How do you handle that moment when, uh, from nothing that you have done yourself, the bridges have been mended, the peace has been secured, the forgiveness has been offered, and now you have to look each other in the eyes? It's one thing to have to forgive others, but then to be forgiven by him, there is some terror involved. I wonder what it's like to be in that place of terror. One of my favorite stories about forgiveness comes from a Spanish theologian who talks about a father and a son who had become estranged. In fact, the the father had been so angry with his adult son that he said, leave me, you are not my son anymore. And the son was so angry looked at the father and says, I need not a father like you, and left. And they didn't talk for five years, six years. And and the father began to feel bad about what he had said and done. And he he needed closure. He didn't know where his son was, but he thought, you know, I I will go to the, the main newspaper in Madrid, and I will take out a want ad. Be simple three lines that says Paco, Paco, a common name in Spanish, right? Paco, all is forgiven. I'll meet you in the city center of Madrid, signed uh, on the last day of April, signed your father. When the last day of April came, uh, Paco's father was in the city center, waiting and looking to see where his son was. And the story is told that over a hundred men named Paco showed up to be forgiven by their father in the city square. The terror of grace, the beauty of the moment, that all is forgiven, and it has little to do with what you've done or not done. It has everything to do with the kindness of the father. This, I believe, is the terror of grace. This kind of terror that the wrong that has been done has been blotted out. It's been done away. And nothing by your own actions. That the disciples and the women must have been feeling this terror as they realized that Jesus was not dead, but was alive. So oftentimes, when we come to think about God, we think about God as humanity writ large. And so the imperfections that we have, we assume probably that God has as well. That that God must be like a a great cosmic eight-year-old with a magnifying glass sitting over a bunch of ants, zapping them. But Scripture tells us a different story of God, much more like the story of the prodigal son. If you remember that story, it was a, a son who said, I want my inheritance, I'm leaving you. 
blows his inheritance. And while he has inheritance and money, he's got friends. But as soon as he doesn't, he doesn't. And finally, he decides in his poverty that he will go home and maybe his dad will hire him on as a hired hand. And what we, what we realize is that all throughout that journey away from the father, the father has been going out every evening and every day, looking down the road, wondering if today's the day that his son will come home. Sadly, that's not the day, so he goes back inside. But every day, every night, every morning, every noontime, he is looking down the road, hoping that today is the day that his son will come home. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that, that upon seeing his son far off, he gathers up his cloak and runs to his son. And does he say to his son, I told you so. Does he say, if you'd just done it my way? If, did he say, oh, you owe me with interest? No. He says, let's have a party. For what was lost is found. What was dead is now alive. My son has returned. Let's throw a party. See, that's the kind of love and forgiveness that God offers us when we come home. That's the kind of beauty that's available to us. That's the kind of terror that can happen as well. That realizing that the unfinished business with Jesus has been finished by him. When is an ending not an ending? When a dead man lives again. When is an ending not an ending? When you and I decide it's a beginning. You see, I believe there's a little theological grammar going on in the Gospel of Mark. The reason why it stops mid-sentence, why, um, why verse 8 needs to be the ending. I know, you're going to go home and you're going to find there's like another 10 verses. Yes, right? But scholars say verse 8 was where it ended. And you're going to say, why? My answer to you would be that the gift of the resurrection requires a response from us. That the the story of the resurrection is not done until you and I decide that it's true for us, that we are no longer dead but alive, that there's nothing so, so long gone, so forgotten, so useless, so shameful, uh, so out of the box that Jesus cannot resurrect it to life. You see, we, we've decided that there are labels on top of us, there are, are reasons why Jesus would not associate with us. I mean, yes, we, we show up, we sit in the pews, we, we look good, right? But deep inside, we're like, yeah, I'm just posing. I'm just here for the moment until they figure out how bad I am, and then they will kick me to the curb. But, but you see, the resurrection states that there is nothing, none of us, not one of us, that one can earn our resurrection or can be denied because of our actions that it is God's love, it is Jesus' blood, it is what Jesus does and not what we do that brings us to that place of repentance and salvation. So where do we go from here? What do you do after Jesus himself turns and wraps his arms around you and me and says, peace be with you? Well, the scripture says in John that he goes before us to Galilee and waits for us to come. I believe Jesus will wait as long as it takes for us to decide that life is worth living. To get up and be Easter people, uh, to walk out the doors and to spread the message and to meet him in the city so that together 
we can do what God's called us to do. You see, it's grace upon grace that Jesus is waiting. It's grace upon grace that he calls us to life. It's grace upon grace that not even a cross with the God of creation hanging on it by nails can keep him from loving the world. The resurrection story is this. It's a choice. Will we be paralyzed by fear, recognizing everything is in the daylight? Or will we take up our cross and follow Jesus into the light where there is work to be done, but where there is grace to be had and where we serve the God who rolls away stones? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, Chapelwood United Methodist Church exists to help ourselves and others take their next step in their faith journey with Christ. And not to scatter steps all over the place, but to align them for the very specific purpose of raising a generation in faith, of doing the things that uh, in our life, um, in our faith life, will bring vitality and fruitfulness, um, grace and beauty, uh, and that can be caught by our kids. So they might be life-giving habits for them as well. Um, I hope uh, that this has been an opportunity for you to remember uh, that we worship a God who rolls away stones, uh, and that the second part of the resurrection is about what we do with it. Uh, and over the course of Easter uh, season, I hope that you'll come and join us. Uh, we have a, a series about uh, rolling away your stones. Uh, we'll be asking tough questions, uh, some of them being, what if hope fails? What if I'm overwhelmed? What if I'm not good enough? What if I can't do this alone? Uh, if those are questions that you wonder about, I know I wonder about them as well. Uh, I hope that together we can go to Scripture and worship the God who rolls away stones and uh, makes uh, that which we thought was lost found again. Um, I do hope that the baptismal families, uh, all of them, whether you're um, the kind that got baptized in the surf or the kind that got sprinkled in the church, uh, if you'll uh, walk out during the closing hymn, so that the congregation can greet you after the service. We invite David Hill to come and lead us in uh, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. All right, a benediction, a good word going forth. May God bless you, the God of resurrection, the God of empty tombs, the God of new life and new beginnings. And may we remember that when is an ending not an ending? When it's a beginning. Go in peace this day. Amen. <laughs>